Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Each month, over 80,000 people download podcasts produced from the fevered mind of Royfield Brown. They cover a gamut of topics, like maps, politics, American presidents, history, the archers, Formula One, Jamaican culture, and Englishness. Go to wherever you get your podcast and type in Royfield Brown to discover a new favorite podcast today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome. I'm Royfield Brown, who is in my beloved Oakland in California. And this is the third recording of Mid-Atlantic that I've done this week. And you're probably listening, listening saying, no, you haven't. Yes, just before I fly back to the UK to spend time with the folks. I've crammed in a whole load of interviews, which I will then play out over the Christmas time. Mid-Atlantic, you know what the drill is. We look at US and UK politics. We compare and contrast. Today, we're going to look at how you become a senator or even the president of the United States. So we're focusing in on US politics. And my guest today is Z Cohen-Sanchez, the executive director of Soul Strategies. Z has worked on several people-powered campaigns in the last decade, helping to flip seats across the country. After Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign, she committed to helping Democratic candidates win seats across the nation. Since founding Soul Strategies in 2020, her multifaceted team has worked on hundreds of powerful campaigns nationwide. As America slowly starts to gear up for the 2024 election, we ask what are the elements that candidates need to be successful? We are just 100 days away from the midterm elections, and new polls show that neither Republican nor Democratic voters are particularly happy about their options for the 2024 presidential race. In a News Nation poll out today, 57% of total voters said Mr. Trump should not run for president. 26% of Republicans want someone else as their nominee. More than 60% of all voters said President Biden shouldn't run for re-election. 
30% of Democrats said he should sit out 2024. For more on what voters are thinking, Doug High joins us now. He is a Republican strategist and the founder of Douglas Media. Doug, great to have you here. Looking at that polling information, Doug, both of the recent presidential nominees, President Biden and former President Trump, clearly not doing too well. So what does that mean for both parties as they head into November? What does that mean for both parties as they run into the midterms? We know what happened in the midterms now. Z Cohen Sanchez, thank you for coming on to the show. How are you today? Yeah, thanks for having me. I am doing great. I'm a boring historian, or at least a student of history. So I always start with the past. One of the things that always really fascinated me was up until, let's say, just over 100 years ago, candidates who were running to be president didn't actually formally run. They hid behind other people saying, oh, yeah, you should go for this, buddy, type of thing. They didn't even campaign. What is, let's say, the one innovation in the last 10 years, would you say, which has been most significant to the world of campaigning? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that the most like recent tool, I guess you should say, that works is social media. I know that this was a little bit more back than 10 years ago. I think that the first presidential candidate that ever really utilized social media outreach was Obama back in his 2008 campaign. It's changed the game, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. How easy is it for politicians who are incumbent and, dare I say, long in the tooth, to really get a handle on, let's say, using social media or new tools of campaigning. One of the things which I'm always struck by being a Brit, our prime minister is what, about 42? Justin Trudeau is probably the right side of 50. Macron is round about the same age. All of the major figures in American politics are pretty old. Are they getting behind social media effectively? Or is this a younger candidate's thing? I think that's a good question because we all know like their staff. I think this would be the case in the UK too, that staffers tend to skew very young. And the reason for that, obviously, is that political campaigning is a burnout job, right? It's it's fast paced a lot of the times. It's not forever work, depending on if your candidate wins or not, whether you get another position. So it does attract younger people. It attracts people without families. So in that respect, I think that these candidates are forced to get behind it because a lot of them, especially at the upper levels that we're talking about, Congress, the Senate, presidential, they're not making those kinds of decisions. Those decisions obviously are made by their staff. So I think in that respect, they're following what their staff is telling them to do. In terms of utilization, (laughs) that's a whole different can of worms. I've seen older candidates use it really well. I think like Bernie Sanders is a great example of that. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a fan of Bernie, although clearly I am, but The way that Bernie's been able to utilize social media to his advantage, he's really been able to raise the majority of his money on social media, which is impressive considering that at least in the Democratic primary, both in 2016 and I believe in 2022, he outraised all the other candidates. And I believe it was like at least 75% or higher was raised online. So that for sure. But I've also seen older candidates not use it well. And I think personally, I love Elizabeth Warren. I think she's amazing. Is she amazing on social media? Not really. Kamala Harris is another good example. I think she doesn't come off authentic enough. And I think that's the problem with Warren as well, is that when people are scrolling on social media, they're looking for their candidates to be relatable. And a lot of the times, unfortunately, they're not. What's more important, 
if, if we stick with social media, the fact that it can actually ring in the dollars or is a way of disseminating a message? So I think it can be both. I think that it matters at which level we're talking about, right? So if we're talking about the local level races, social media should really be used to get your message out to your constituents. But I think when we're talking about the higher level races, it becomes harder and harder to do that in some respects. But really what we use social media for, at least at Soul Strategies, the primary thing that we use it for is for fundraising. Because if you're able to build a good network on social media, particularly on email has become one of the highest, easiest ways to fundraise in the space, then you're going to be very successful in saying that, obviously, you got to stick on your messaging. But if let's just say you're running for city council, right? And you're trying to do that on Twitter, for example, you're not going to run into your constituents there. So the only reason why you should be there for that particular in that particular space for a race like that should be to raise money. But what happened to good old-fashioned door knocking, burning up the shoe leather, or dare I say, the sneaker rubber? That's probably a better analogy now. And <laughs> God heavens, British people are listening to me and saying that I called it sneakers and not trainers. But I am, when in America, British, when in America, <laughs> where does that sit as a calculus in terms of effort and time? The reason why we're called soul strategies is because the soul of your shoe, right? It's like a double entendre. It's the, the soul of the campaign. You need soul to win a campaign, but also the souls of your shoes need to be dirty and ruined by the end. And the reason why we believe in that isn't because like we woke up one day and said, oh, let's door knock and that's going to be an effective way to campaign. No, I mean, the reason why is because every study that's ever come out about campaigning leads to the conclusion that door knocking is the most effective way to campaign. The numbers are all over the place. All these studies, obviously, are going to have different results and different numbers. But I've heard that people are seven times more likely to go to the polls. That's something that floats around in the campaign world a lot if they have a good conversation at the door, which is a lot. Seven times more likely, that's huge. That's nothing compared to a social media outreach or a mailer in their hand or anything like that. I've also seen that it can increase election turnout by five to seven percent, depending on the size of your programs. All of these things lead us to, yes, it is the most expensive thing to do. Yes, it is the hardest thing to do, but it is the most effective. If we were to take money out of politics or at least regulate it because you can never take it completely out i come from a country where if you're going to run to become a member of parliament which is analogous to a congressman or congresswoman you can only spend approximately forty thousand pounds on your campaign oh. so this it's like chalk and cheese in terms of British politics and American politics and campaigning and campaign finance, etc. If America was to go down a European model, which I think is highly rational, what would happen to organisations like yours, like Soul Strategies? Listen, I think that no matter what, like we will continue to exist, right? And I think that there's a big difference between, and I don't know the conversion of 40,000 pounds to US dollars. Can you help me uh, on that one? All right. It's going to be about $46,000. Okay. For, a congr for something at the level of con Congress? Yeah. That's all they can spend? Wow. That's low. Okay. That is particularly low. Low, and I think low in yeah. Europe, we'd say that's compatible with running a democracy and it's rational. Yeah. Which 
listen, I, there are parts of me that totally agree. I will say though, that in order to run an effective field program, you need a lot of people. And if you're going to get a lot of people, in my opinion, you got to pay them because I think unpaid labor is not right. So when we're looking at it from that perspective, I think that amount is low, but are, if you're asking like, do we need to cap the spending? Absolutely. It's absurd. The fact that people are running for city council in Los Angeles and spending a million dollars is wrong. There's no other way to put it. I think it's just one, a complete waste of money. And two, it's not necessary to run an effective campaign. You should be able to run a city council race with less than $50,000. And if you can't, then that's a problem with the system, not a problem with the money and the people donating. So I think that that's definitely something that needs to be considered. A couple hundred thousand, yeah, I agree. I think that like we should have caps on spending. And I think if we put caps on it, then I don't think it would affect organizations like ours. I think that we would still thrive and people wouldn't be spending outrageous amounts of money. Is there at all a worry, a concern, an issue, let's say, around organizations like yours who do great work? I've decided I want to run for city council in, I was going to say, a min, a Minneapolis, but maybe that's, I can't quite afford you guys. But let's say I, I'm running for to be state senator in New York, let's say, and I come to you. Isn't there a risk, because you are running so many different campaigns, that in effect, my offering to the voter then becomes somewhat alike others? How do you ward against that? If so many people are coming to you, telling you similar stories, I fought in Iraq for America and blah, 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 and I've come back and I want to give back to the country with that type of thing. And I say that totally with total respect, but you're going to put them through the mints, aren't you? You're going to say you need to do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. How do you end up running campaigns which have been truly unique? Yeah, that's that's a very fair question. I think that Yes, there are people that have similarities that we work with, of course. I think the veterans that you were just mentioning, like that's a really, that's very common. We get a lot of veterans, we get a lot of working class folks, we get a lot of single mothers. I think that the biggest difference is though, and what makes each campaign so unique that we run is that the communities are very different. So let's take New York for an example, because that's a good example that you use, like running for state senate. So in New York, we have hundreds and hundreds of districts all, all across the state, and all of them are so different. So you might say, oh, you know, what if you have two candidates that are next to each other in Queens, for example? You could go from block to block in Queens, and you're in totally different neighborhoods with totally different histories and completely different demographics. And so it's less about the candidate and their story and more about what are they gonna do to help this community? That's the way that we see campaigns. And that's not the same as what a lot of consulting firms out there see campaigns as because their job really is to make their candidate happy. And what makes candidates more happy than you telling them that they're special and that we all know this, right? A lot of candidates have an ego. That's why they're running a lot of the time. Not always, but a lot of the time. We're not like that. We're not we're not going to just work with somebody because we can, right? Like we need to we only want to work with people that are running for the right reasons. And the right reasons mean that you need to be running to change your community to and not necessarily change that's not the right word, but to serve your community. Is the fact that everybody has a past and then there is social media. Is that some way, some level of a deterrent for people who are just human beings actually not running 
for political office. Back in the good old days before there was social media, you could have had a couple of messy divorces and maybe a DUI and still run and things would not necessarily surface. Are we, because of digital media, now basically saying you need to be squeaky clean to be able to run for high office. And I know there is a very notable exception to that, but let's just put the last president of the United States, just put him to one side now. And let's just talk with regular folks that are running for high office. I think all these things are at a scale, right? So when we talk about, do people need to be squeaky clean? Absolutely not, if you ask us. I think if you ask consultants out in the greater US, like what they believe, they'd probably tell you yes, for the most part, that yes, like they need to have a pretty impeccable track record. I disagree, I really do. And I think I don't wanna talk for my whole staff, but I, I would say that they do as well, because I think what, if you're running as a working class person, you're going to have some type of baggage, right? It might not necessarily be five divorces and uh, drinking under the influence. You're going to have maybe posting pictures of you partying or something like what just happened in, I forgot that country, that lovely woman. Finland, was, Finland, the uh, Finland, Prime Minister right, of Finland. Right, Finland, yeah. who's friend with Sander Hearn. And yeah, I think that expecting people to have squeaky clean track records is absurd, really. No, I think that there are exceptions to that, right? If somebody, had, God forbid, molested a child or done something that is an unforgivable thing in our society, then that is completely different. But that person shouldn't be representing the community anyway. If we're talking about, oh, you got some parking tickets and you've gone through a divorce, 50% of people in America have gone through a divorce. That doesn't, you know, that shouldn't make you any less appealing to a voter, in, in our opinion. Where does talking points sit with an organization like yours and real substantive policy because one of the things which is always been marked from a british perspective looking at american politics is just talking points politicians who can talk about something but actually aren't really making any substantive points aren't really presenting let's say new innovative or effective policy they're just talking down the other side where does an organization like yours sit with that, considering that you're always going to be about honing a message and getting it down into 140 odd characters for Twitter? Good news is we don't do Twitter anymore. So yes, that's great. But no, I see what you're saying. And I think that there needs to be a balance, right? I think the talking points are incredibly important because let's face it, we live in a society where, and this has changed substantially in the last 10 to 15 years, right? Where we are just so overloaded with information all the time, right? Like where, I don't know what they said, it's what, a thousand plus advertisements we see a day and we're not even, and you don't even have to leave the house anymore for that to happen. So in that way, we do have to have some level of talking points because we have to be able to cut through that noise in an effective way. But there's a difference between having talking points that actually lead to policy and not, right? And we are the folks that want those talking points to actually make sense and lead to policy. And I think a good example of this is a lot of consultants out there or and candidates, even if they don't work with consultants, they'll do things like they'll be running for city council and they'll be talking about Medicare for all. You can't do anything about Medicare for all in a city council seat. That's really great that you're passionate about it. And yes, we agree that everybody should have health care in this country, but we have to talk about things that, that you can actually 
change in that seat and in that structure. So that's really the difference is that we try to help our candidates to really narrow it down so that they can have talking points that actually make sense so that they're one, passionate about it, and two, will actually change it when they get elected. I'm Katie Darling, and I live on a farm in St. Tammany Parish. Our family composts, collects rainwater, and grows our own food. My husband and daughter help take care of the chickens. And there's someone else who's going to be joining us and helping to pitch in with farm life very soon. But these days, I worry about storms that are stronger and more frequent because of climate change, about our kids underperforming public schools, and about Louisiana's new abortion ban, one of the strictest and most severe in the country. We should be putting pregnant women at ease, not putting their lives at risk. I haven't spent my career in Washington. I've worked my way up from bartender to CEO. Now I help nurses organize our complicated health records because nurses aren't just heroes, they're saints. Louisiana deserves better than the path we're on. I'm Katie Darling and I'm running for Congress because I want that better path for you, for her, and for him. Was that a good political ad? That's a good question. (laughs) Very good question. I think that in Louisiana, that was an absolutely great political ad. I think Haiti had an uphill battle. I think we knew that from day one, running against somebody like Steve Scully is not easy. Would that ad have been good in a place like New York? I think that, I think in places where abortion is not as big of a As big of a topic and something that people are concerned about, no. But we did a lot of research into Katie's messaging and abortions in Louisiana is something that women voters who are the majority in Louisiana were very concerned about. And so they should be because of the abortion bans that were happening. I think that ad really did what it needed to do in the place that she was running. If you could change two elements of it, And what would you change and why? Two elements. I think that not necessarily change, but I think overall, I would have wanted Katie to talk more about her husband being an officer, because one of the issues that we're seeing pop up, and this is pretty universal across the United States, is that people have a lot of concerns about safety, which for good reason, because things are becoming more and more unsafe every day in this country, particularly with gun violence and all of that. So I I would have, I think, overall like to see Katie talk more about her husband and about crime and about how their family has contributed. Wouldn't that then just make it sound like all the other ads? No, I don't think so, because I think that one of the things is that we that one of the things are that we have to really focus on again is bringing it back to what people are actually asking and worried about. I think that too many of these ads are focused on arbitrary issues. For example, I saw a lot of ads running in the midterm elections in New York that were abortion focused. And in New York, it's in like the shrine of the constitution. They will never get rid of abortion. Same thing in Nevada as well, where I live. A lot of ads around abortion and women's rights when it's enshrined in the state constitution. So I think that when we do things like that, we're dumbing down voters, right? Because we're essentially saying you don't know this information and we're here to educate you about it, even though it's not true. So I think that we need to be focusing our ads on what actually matters and what people care about. 
who do you say no to? If I've got $5 million, mm-hmm. I don't even know that's even enough. All right, I'm so British when it comes to this stuff because the figures that are needed to run for American office are just so mind-boggling to me. But yeah. <laughs> let's forget the amount of money. Who would you say no to? In terms of a, a candidate to work with us, you mean? Yeah, what type of person would you say, you know what, no, I can't work with you. I don't want to, we don't want to work with you. One, we don't work with any Republicans at all. So that's not even, it doesn't matter what type of Republican you are. We do not work with them. Wait, wait a minute. Say if I'm Liz Cheney, right? No, and- still no. Still no, unfortunately. I mean, okay. can't. It's across party lines like that. There's too much that is fundamentally different. And I hear you with Liz Cheney, right? Because sometimes we work with folks in... It, I wouldn't necessarily say in the middle in terms of like New York, but in the middle in some other places. And the reason why is because when we're running against some of these really big incumbents, putting a Medicare for all DSA progressive against them is not the smartest move. Like we have to go with somebody, again, that the community is looking for in terms of representation and not every community is that far left. So it's almost inauthentic, in my opinion, to run like a democratic socialist against in a place like Louisiana. So if Katie was a democratic socialist and she wanted to run against Steve Scalise, I would say we wouldn't do that because it's it just doesn't make sense. So I think that who we say no to in terms of the Democratic Party, at least, a few things. So I think if we're not on the same page in terms of our values, and we're pretty upfront with our candidates about what our values are and where we'll budge a little bit and where we will not. But if they're running in a race that is just not just not winnable under any circumstance, and not only not winnable, but we don't have a path to victory in multiple cycles, then we won't work on those races. You're listening to a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic has been my political podcast for some eight years, and it's the second podcast I ever did after How Jamaica very close to my heart. And dare I say, one of the reasons why I'm in America right now is because of my my fascination with the experiment that is America. Who knows if the experiment will work in the end such is. So things are somewhat up in the air, I say somewhat tongue in cheek. America is a fascinating place and has given me home and sucker for some seven years now. And Mid-Atlantic is in part a homage. If you are listening to this at home and you haven't written us a review on Apple iTunes, I beg, I implore, I beat you to go on to Apple Podcasts and write us a review. If you think we deserve five stars, that would be most awesome. But be true to yourself with the review. You can send me an email at royfield at gmail.com and you can berate me for my lefty, wishy-washy, hummus-eating attitudes. And I say to you, I'm proud of them. What I don't do is tear down those who have other views. I try and talk to them, which is the whole point of Mid-Atlantic. And then that is a wonderful segue for me to say that if you're in the audience and you would like to ask Z Cohen Sanchez, a political consultant, think about the dark arts of getting candidates elected. Now is your time. El Presidente Mayhem, do you have a question for Z? I do. Z, first of all, this is refreshing to have somebody on the stage on Clubhouse that actually understands how campaigns operate. It's really cool to have you here. So my question for you would be, when it comes to the tools that you just, that you utilize for these campaigns, do you default to solutions for data like L2 and for canvassing? Are you using something like an e-canvasser or does it really depend on what type of campaign, like what level like you're looking at? Yeah, I think it depends on the level of campaign. So when it comes to 
field operations, which again, that's really our bread and butter. So we do all the other things, fundraising, digital, all of those things are to raise money to ultimately run the biggest and best field program that we possibly can. So when we're running our field programs, we use a data software called Van, which is pretty much what everybody uses across the board, voter action network. We're able to connect it with data where we're able to see which voters we're talking to, what we're, what their interests are, and it goes pretty deep into all of that information. However, there are parts of Van that they're just not, I would say, updated for the 2023 user. Things have changed substantially over the last 15 years, and Van has been a little bit slow in terms of getting the next piece. I think it's interesting you mentioned eCanvasser because we don't really use that in the U.S. I know that they're, I think that they're a U.K.-based app, but even eCanvasser has like some extra features I think that Van doesn't quite have yet. But we actually just developed our own field app called the Soul Field app, and it's going to be integrating with Van potentially, hopefully, we'll see next week, but we'll be able to do a lot more in terms of able to track our canvassers, being able to track more data information about the conversations that we're having, being able to connect with our administrators actually on the app and not have to be texting people at the same time. So we're really hoping that really helps to improve Van's already great software and just make it more updated for the 2023 user. Awesome. Thank you for that. Doors win wars. So good job. Absolutely. (laughs) I agree. I think it doesn't even, people always remember the conversations that they have because especially with the pandemic, people are craving that in-person connection. We're hoping to do a lot more of that in the upcoming election cycle. Marshall Rankin, you're up next, sir. Now, Marshall, I know that you are a proper door-to-door canvasser. You're out there in the trenches, so to speak. My first question to you, Marshall, do you burn shoe leather or do you burn sneaker rubber knocking doors? <laughs> sneaker rubber for sure. It's better on the knees. <laughs> gotcha. What's your question, Marshall? I was actually curious what you thought of the performance in the Rio Grande Valley, being a Democratic strategist and campaigner and all, and what you thought of, uh, if you know any, if you have kept track with this area, if you know what you think about Cuellar winning and then Michelle Vallejo a younger, more progressive candidate losing. So actually, I I didn't follow that race, to be perfectly honest. Can you give me a little bit of background? Yes, ma'am. Our area has been democratically controlled. I live in the Rio Grande Valley for about 120 years. CD15, which this is in, stretches all the way up to Seguin in Texas. It's a long, skinny district. And then there's another district where Henry Cuellar lives, and that's Texas 28. And that's a long part of the border. And that area is much more rural, much more Hispanic ranching families than CD15. CD15 got drawn more Republican. And when Monica won, she won with more votes out of Seguin than she did the Rio Grande Valley. But I'm more curious what you think about Democrats and maybe Democrats in their strongholds and performing, because this has been a stronghold for the Democratic Party in Texas for a long time. And it looks like it's finally starting to slip. And I've been doing door knocking stuff with the GOP down here for about eight years. Okay. That, yeah, that's interesting. So I do know, I think Quayer, Jessica Sosarnos ran against him, right? Yes, ma'am. She's not us for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think that one of the issues with running these newer candidates like Jess and I guess this other woman you said that was running against him. Yes, ma'am. Michelle Vallejo. Yeah. 
Yeah. So she I got think back that, by Lupe. Yeah. So I think that part of the issue with running these campaigns is that name recognition is always going to be, it's always going to carry so much weight. Jessica, I think is a good example of somebody she's been able to raise pretty decent amount of money, but still nothing compared to what Quayer has been able to. It's just such an uphill battle when they don't have comparable money to be able to get a field program out in, in a sizable, a, a sizable field program that will actually make a difference. I think that Jessica has done amazing. I think that she's run twice and she's gotten very close. But I think again, without having that money to back her up and for somebody like Claire, where it's, it's truly unlimited. I mean, we started this podcast talking a little bit about some of the issues with money and politics. And I think that this is a really big issue, right? Because no matter how much these insurgent Democrats, and I don't even want to call them all socialists because they're not, more left-leaning Democrats, I guess you should say. When these incumbents just have unlimited money that they can just get, if the working class candidate goes and raises a hundred extra thousand dollars, they'll just go to the next super PAC and take 300,000 or 500,000 or a million. It becomes very difficult because it just becomes again, a money catch-up game and eventually the incumbent tends to, unfortunately, always come out on top. So I think that fixing the money in, pro in politics problem would certainly help, but also not just doing that, but also changing over to the ranked choice voting system, I think is, would help those candidates tremendously. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for that great and detailed answer. Jane Rosenweg, you're up next, Jane. Hi, Warfield. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Z. Gonna be it's gonna be a sharp right turn because I do not work in politics. I have spent a couple decades in corporate America, so I hone in on workplace issues a lot. And I wondered what your thoughts are on just the living wage issue that has gotten pegged. I know far left progressive, but it really isn't to me. So just wonder what your thoughts are on that whole issue and whether there's traction to be had for the Democratic Party. Okay. I do. Yeah. No, I think that's a great question. And I think that this is an issue that crosses party lines because at the end of the day, we haven't had a wage increase since what, 2012? It's been like 
10 years. I Somebody fact check me on that. I don't know the exact year, but I, the fact of the matter is that we still have a $7.25 minimum wage nationally. And I know some cities have changed this, like New York, I know has pushed up to $15 and other cities around the country have pushed up to $12.15. But the issue years ago, even more than that, God, 14, 15 years ago, we were talking about the fight for 15. And now we're 15 years down the line and we haven't even raised the minimum wage to anything above $10. That it is becoming a huge issue because when we're looking at inflation, people in the United States, and it doesn't matter how cheap of a city you live in, you could live in Nebraska, you could live in North Dakota. If you're working a minimum wage job in those state, in that state, and you can't afford a two bedroom apartment or even a one bedroom apartment, then that's to me, that's absurd. And I think that the Democrats, in my opinion, have not talked about this enough. And again, we're ta- we're going back to the abortion issue, right? Which, of course, like this is a big issue in a lot of states. And don't get me wrong in saying that I don't think that we should be talking about abortion. I think in places like Louisiana, we absolutely should. But we need to be talking more about what actually affects people's pockets and the fact that there are people that work two to three jobs and they still can't afford to even have a modest lifestyle. They can't even afford to keep a roof over their head to have children, to have a family. And I think that the Democrats could really, they could really benefit from talking about those issues more, even more than that, actually taking action on those issues. Just on that point, and thank you for that, Jane. Just on that point, read some stats. Since 1978, so we're going back a little bit pre-Reagan, college tuition has increased by 1,120%. Medical care costs on average have risen by 601%. Housing costs have increased by 380%. Meanwhile, the pay of typical workers rose by just 10% when adjusted for inflation. Minimum wage workers fell by 5.5%. I think that's got to be wrong, right? But but these are supposed to be verified stats. Whilst the average CEO's pay has increased by 937%. Why is it that democratic prospective candidates for high office or Democrats in high office don't speak more about the crisis in the cost of living. This is a massive thing in the UK at the moment. This is humongous. And we have various sectors of the economy, whether it's nurses through to train drivers who are now striking because people just can't make ends meet. Why is it that Democrats are afraid to talk about this in the States? Yeah, I think that if we're going to be brutally honest, I don't think that they're going to like me saying this as a person that's part of the Democratic Party and works within it. But if we're being brutally honest, it's because they don't want to talk about changing campaign finance reform. And when you start talking about issues such as increasing minimum wage, cost of living and all of that, then you have to take on corporate America. And unfortunately, if they take on corporate America, then they're not going to be their donors. And that that is really the issue at the crux of it. And unfortunately, the only person that really talks about this, and we have other people that have been elected since Bernie, but is really Bernie because everybody else, when you ask them, go and ask Joe Biden right now. And I'm sure he would tell you behind closed doors that what's more important, making sure that I get my campaign funded or talking about the issues within corporate America. He's going to tell you that it's more important to get that campaign funding, whereby Bernie has been very transparent in saying that this is absurd and that one, it's absurd and two, it's not sustainable. I think that that's something that we got to talk about more is the fact that 
at some point, this is all going to come crashing down. Is it going to be tomorrow? Who knows, right? It's going to be in 20 years. I don't know. But at some point, says it's people will have a revolution or but you see, know, but something else but will see, happen. See, what I don't understand slightly from what you've said, you've said that social media is, a, is fundamentally a cash generating machine. Yes, mm-hmm. it gets messages out. And Obama most definitely proved that Yes, it's great if you have corporate donors that give you lots of money, but small cash donations, I think you had more of that than all the corporate money put together. So why, so surely these, at least the Democrats anyway, are, can unmoor themselves from corporate donations because of the efficiency of their social media operation and small cash donations. So they can talk about real issues that are affecting Americans, right? I agree with you. I think that if if people in the middle, the quote unquote middle of the road Democrats, folks like Biden and Kamala, if they turned around tomorrow and they said, I'm only going to take small dollar donations, they might not raise as much money as Bernie can. But I do absolutely believe that they would be able to raise more than enough money to run a successful campaign. Unfortunately, like that costs more money to be able to do that. They have to hire staff to do that. They got to pay money for ads. They've got to, it's a lot of work to get small dollar donors. For them, it's a lot easier just to have a wine cellar corporate party and have a two or three big massive donors coming from super PACs that will just fund their entire campaign. So I think that's just what it is. The next time one of your clients does one of those events, if it's anywhere near California, can I get an invite? I will drink their wine, (laughs) but I will sneer. At least from our side, we don't, none of our working class candidates have the connections to be able to have any of those wine cellar events. (laughs) Gotcha. And anyway, it'd be a beer they'd be drinking anyway. Right, Mamadou, I believe you're next in the queue. Then we're going to do Brad, Marty, Anson, and then Mike Donahue. So Mamadou, you're up next in my queue. Thank you, Royfield, and thank you, Z, for joining. I'm just going to get straight to the point. How do you determine, working as a political consultant, how do you determine, at least just from your perspective, that you found the right candidate to work for, outside of the ones that would just come in and say, hey, I need your services? How do you go about saying, you know what, I, this is my guy, and you know what, I'm going to do whatever I can to put this guy in office? How do you go about that? One of the things that we're very lucky to have is an incredible outreach team. So we're doing a lot of research on the back end to reach out to the candidates that we really want to actually work with. So we're not just sending out like a mass email to 400 plus candidates that are running in California. A lot of these consulting firms do. So that's a filter for us. But I think in terms of what sort of turns us on in terms of a candidate and like what qualities they possess, I think somebody that has truly been working in the community, that is so many people just wake up one day and they say, I'm going to run for office. And our favorite one ever is I'm going to run for office because of January 6th because of the insurrection. And yes, I'm glad that you're passionate that our democracy was almost taken from us. I'm glad that is something that has awakened you to the political sphere. But that is not a reason to run for office. A reason to run for office is that you have been involved in the community for many years. So those are the folks that we're looking for. We're looking for people that have been working with brothers and sisters of New York or have been working at food pantries that have been going to city council meetings that have been really involved at that level. Those are the people that we really want to help and see them get elected. 
Thank Thanks you for that. Everyone. Thank you for always bringing someone interesting to learn from. Thank you for that compliment. Brad S., you're up next, sir. Thank you so much. I just have one simple question. With the current constructs of social media and the dilemmas that are plaguing both sides of the political spectrum, all sides of the political spectrum, how do you see that going forward in terms of the weaponization by each political side? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that there has to be a lot more regulation. So I don't know how many folks here have seen that movie, The Great Hack, that came out recently on Netflix, I think maybe a couple of years ago at this point, but it explores Cambridge Analytica and all of the, and how they worked on multiple campaigns all over the world, really. They did Boris Johnson in the UK, they did Trump, they did all of these high level races, but they really, for lack of a better word, they really invaded everybody's pride. I think even more so than that, I'm trying to think of something more dramatic, but they really did to the point where it was really unacceptable. I think that we just need more regulation. And I know that's not the best answer. I think I think that we need a team of experts that are able to put together a plan, though, because I don't think that I think shutting down Cambridge Analytica was one thing. And I think that was a statement to be made. And uh, the fact that they were in a lot of trouble, I think that is to a statement to be made. But I don't think it was enough for what they did. And I think that we need to do more to deter these big tech giants from getting so involved in the political space. Thank you so very much. Do you think there will actually be candidates that push back against that narrative instead of falling into the trap of utilizing it going forward? Is there an appetite for that kind of spectrum, you think? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think especially on the GOP side, I think that these and to be perfectly fair, I mean, I think that had they told people in a very, I mean, they say that they told people because it was in the fine print, but whatever, actually telling people that their data was going to be utilized in this way. I think that the people that agreed to that, great. I mean, I think it's a great tool. The way that we're able to target people and do all of that, I think that's fantastic. But I think it's really sinister when we start taking people's information without their knowledge and without their consent. So, yeah, I do think that there's going to be an appetite for sure to use it on both sides of the aisle because it is, for lack of a better word, invasive to the point where we're able to really target what they call the persuadables, right? Which is the term that they use in the movie, The Great Hack of there's... I can't remember what they said. I think they said there's seven personalities in the U.S., right? And they were able to determine who was persuadable and then shove this information so deeply ingrained into them that they would eventually flip and become a voter for Trump or from Boris Johnson or whoever they were supporting. Yeah, I think that if we do that correctly and without being so invasive, I think that there is definitely going to be a space for that. Thank you for that question, Brad. S. Uh, Marty Cohen, but just before I go on to you, Marty. So thank you, Roy Field. Thank you, Z. I appreciate your time here. And it's a pleasure to be with everybody that's in the room today. So my question really is, so Trump is the first person candidate to say that he wants to run. And I'm seeing the first thing he wants, he came up with was, American needs a superhero. I feel like the main, the biggest difference between Trump 2020 and Trump 2016 was campaign promises that he had in 2016, that new approach, that new, the new ideas that we wanted our governments to start doing. And in 2020, I felt like he was flat. He didn't come in any uh, campaign promises. And now I see in the next election that it's going to be the same cycle. What do you think other than on the Democrats or Republican side, what is going to be that campaign promise that is going to push the voters to the voting station? I know COVID really did a lot, added a lot more voters than we had in the past, but at the same time, are we going to see the same numbers that we did in 2020? 
or is it going to be a lot less because it's just America right now just doesn't have that key issues where I feel like either unites one party or has an argument between either party. Yeah. So is the question more around, do you think, will people go out for Trump more or do you think, is it more like in general? No. So it's more, what is the, what is the promises that you think either party are going to start telling the promising people rather I felt like in 2020, that was one thing that both sides just didn't do properly. And I feel like in this one, it is going to be, what are you going to do for us? There are issues that we are facing, but we're not hearing anything in regards to their solutions. Let's do this. Let's do that. Like campaign promises. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the main issues that, you know, that the Republican side are going to talk about are, and this is from just listening to what pundits and other folks have been saying lately, is talking about college tuition increases, which I think that's going to be, it's going to be tricky, right? Because really, that should be a democratic stance that we shouldn't have these colleges that are able to just charge insane amounts of money, particularly if they're a state college, which I can't remember what the percentage was, but some insane percentage of increase. Like I know that my uncle used to go to, for example, UCLA, the University of California, Los Angeles, and he paid like $200 a quarter. And now it's like over 40 grand a year or something. Well, in I, just under the last 45 years, it's increased by over 1200%. Yeah, which is insane. And so I think, you know, that from rumblings that I've heard around, that's going to be a campaign talking point, which is going to be something that the Democrats are really going to have to think about because that's a great campaign talking point. But I think that both sides very heavily are going to focus on safety and security. I think the Democrats are going to talk more about gun safety issues. And I think Republicans are going to talk more about the increase of police. And But I think that they're both going to very much focus on safety concerns in this country. But I do think that the, I think that the level of trust that people had for Trump is not going to be the same in 2022 as it was in in 2016 and in 2020. So I'm worried because I think that what that could mean is that DeSantis wins the primary and then we have a whole other can of worms that we have to deal with. I think, yeah, we're in a bit of a sticky situation going into next election. Thank you for that question, Marty. Anson, my old friend, how are you today, sir? I'm fine. Thanks, Royfield. I know you're going to soccer a Great question. Mr. Burlingame, over to you, sir. Z, I, I haven't run into you before, but I think it's safe to say that you are a, a top-notch advisor within Democratic circles in the Democratic Party. And I wonder what position you're taking right now that is confronting the Democratic Party. Who will they run in 2024? Do you think it is now time to make that decision? Or do you think instead that it would benefit not only the Democratic Party, but the nation as well to have a full up primary to make the choice of the leadership of the Democratic Party going into 2024? Yeah, thank you for that compliment. I really appreciate that. I So my opinion, and again, this is not going to help us to get business. This is my opinion only, but I truly believe that we should have a primary. I think that we 
we say that we want to live in a democracy, right? Living in a democracy means that you need to give people choices. It doesn't mean that you continue to run the same person over and over again and not give people a choice. That's why I've supported ranked choice voting, and I'll continue to support it. My state of Nevada just passed ranked choice, and I think that's going to really help. But I think that we need to have more states across the country that are bold enough to stand up and say, hey, if we truly believe in this democracy, that means that we need to give people a choice. And so I do believe that there should be a primary. I do think that Biden should, if Biden wants to participate in the primary, I think he should go ahead. But I think that ultimately, I think that we are in need of new leadership. I think that what Biden has provided has been safe. And I think safety is fine. I think that's what people want. But if you ask me, I do not think that Biden won the primary fair and square at all. I think that Bernie was set to win. I think that and I know, not I think I know that he won Iowa, he won New Hampshire, he won all the early states, Nevada, and then the Democratic Party basically got together. And I'm sure Obama was involved at this, in this, you know, in the whole thing. But essentially, they told him to step down. And that's what he did. And I don't think he should have done that. I think they should have continued and had a fair primary. And the reason being is that Biden did not want win by a sizable enough percentage, which means in my view that people were not happy with him as a choice. I think that people voted for him because he was the Democrat on the ticket, but I don't think that people were necessarily happy to do that. And I think that Bernie really provided a fresh new perspective that was really centered more around working class issues than anything else. And again, I think the Democratic Party squandered that because they were more concerned with their corporate donors. That's my fear going into 2024, is that this will continue to happen and that we'll just have another fake primary or we might not have a primary at all. And then we will ultimately end up in another situation where it's a potentially even stronger Republican, somebody like DeSantis going against Biden, and we could potentially lose. And that to me is, it's very scary. Z, quick question. I really actually appreciate, first off, you consistently talking about working class candidates, because the one thing which is really marked for the US and the UK is the relative dearth of true working class candidates, that politics seem to have returned to being the plaything of, at least on a national level, of people who, who are middle class, nothing against the middle class. I am a member of the middle class now, but I definitely grew up with working class roots. And I don't think we can have a true representative democracy if everybody, or at least if so much of our political class are lawyers let's say. It skews things if we don't have a few bus drivers there as well, because they don't have the innate concerns of that class. I really commend you for really talking about the working class. And as being British, one of the things which has always really marked American politics away from British is the lack of American politics talking about politicians, sorry, talking about the working class. I will say the middle class as if that really equates to the working class. And there is a fundamental difference. Now, so that's a little bit of a statement, flowers to you in that regard. Oh, thanks. Sanders, let's just say that he is going to run again. And I would have issues if I was an American voter with the age of Mr. Sanders. I might actually align with his politics, but the age of him, I'd go crumbs. You can, we're going to go from Trump, who's old and decrepit, to Biden and to Sanders. And, that, and that's just an age thing. Okay, let's put that to one side. How could you change ameliorate, present, whatever the adjective is, his message so that, let's say he goes up against a DeSantos, America doesn't feel polarized. 
if we were to have a Bernie Sanders of, let's say, 2016 ilk going up against a Ron DeSantis, it would feel like there is no middle ground in American politics. Again, full disclosure here, in terms of the British political spectrum, Bernie Sanders is so milquetoast Labour, it doesn't even bear thinking about. But we're not talking, <laughs> we're not talking about Britain. We're talking yeah. about America. So how would you, a consultant, go around helping Bernie Sanders' message so that middle America, who rightly or wrongly, and I would say wrongly, seem as a dangerous threat to the American Republic because he's a terrible socialist, how do you go about fixing that? First of all, I agree about the age of not just Bernie. The, I think we should have age limits on, on, and I believe that because the average age, I believe, of a congressperson is somewhere like in the sixty-ish range, and I think that's really truly ridiculous. I think at some point, older folks have got to step aside and let young people take things on and carry the torch. And I think that name recognition, money, and I think a lot of other things have put people that are much older in the forefront, and I think that's a massive problem. So. Is Bernie the right person to run in 2024? I don't know. I honestly think that Bernie has done so much for this country. I think that he should retire and have a great life and, and be with his grandkids and do what older folks should be doing. But I fear that there isn't a replacement for Bernie. And the reason that I say that to your question about Bernie being a socialist and the fear of that, I think that Bernie did a really great job at at differentiating between a democratic socialist and a socialist. But I think that Bernie didn't really talk about socialism really at all in the middle of the country. And he still did exceptionally well in places like the Rust Belt states, like Michigan, Ohio. Bernie was doing numbers that were incredible. And the reason why is because we're talking about, again, working class people with working class issues that have never been spoken to about, or at least in the last 20, 30 years, have never been spoken to about their standard of living. I know like earlier you were talking about the railroad strike, right? The fact that Biden hasn't done anything and in fact has caused real harm to this whole movement is ridiculous. We're talking about people that are asking for paid or not even paid sick time, just sick days. That's literally all they're asking for, which should be federal law. You shouldn't go to work sick, right? That's just absurd. And so the fact that we're even having this struggle in the Democratic Party doesn't make sense. But I think that Bernie did, and I know that Bernie did exceptionally well. I know like in West Virginia, for example, he won every single county in the Democratic primary, which West Virginia is considered a very conservative state. Gotcha. Mike Donahue, you're up next, brother. Yeah. Hi. Thanks, Steve, for taking the time right off the bat. Congratulations on the Pat Ryan victory. I think that stuck and that was a big deal. Oh, thank um, you so much. No, no. I really enjoy politics, which means I'm constantly depressed and extremely cynical. <laughs> and I think my fear is that, and it seems like you guys are very, very far left about the working class and trying to get the working class more involved. Mm -hmm. And honestly, at any uh, federal posts where a normal kind of person can hit that role without like definitely D-trip backing and without having the ability to either significantly fund their campaign or even more like some of the candidates I've worked with, the D-trip analysis goes into, can you fund the next three campaigns, right? And I guess I'm just depressed about the direction that's going in and just wondered what your thoughts were and if I should be depressed and cynical. 
Thank you. <laughs> I think it's hard not to be with where we're at in saying that. I think that I think that we're off to in in the right direction. Unfortunately, I do agree with you in terms of it's very difficult when we're trying to work with candidates that we know can do well, and the D trip doesn't back them. I think that's a that's an ongoing issue, and we've worked on D triple C campaigns, like Pat Ryan's a good example, but also have worked on working families campaigns and some of these more, yeah, you could say sort of justice Democrat sort of style of campaigning. But I do think that it is possible to win campaigns without the D-TRIP support. And in saying that, I also see that the D-TRIP has moved a little further to the left. Some of the people that they're backing, I'm truly actually surprised. And I don't think I would have ever seen them backing those people back in 2014 or 2016. And I think that what they are starting to understand is that in order for them to keep up relevancy, in order for them to continue to grow as a party, that they're going to have to support people, of course, like depending on where they're running, right? But especially in places like New York, they're going to have to support people that are a little more left. And so I think that we're definitely off to a good start in that respect, because for example, somebody like Pat Ryan, I don't think the D trip would have taken seriously even eight years ago, six years ago. So I think that I think we're definitely moving in the right direction in that respect. But I do hear you in in, in the sense of it is frustrating sometimes because they need to be backing a little bit lefter candidates in districts that are more left in order for them to win. Thank you for that excellent question, Mike. Last shout out to people in the audience. If you would like to pose a question to Z Cohen Sanchez, who is the executive director of Soul Strategies, who helps Democratic prospective candidates with their campaigning, helps them specifically with their new media kind of assets and messaging. So if you have a, if you're in the audience and you want to fire a question, now is your time. What's the future, Z, for your organization? You worked for Bernie in 2016, and that seems to have fired you up so much to not necessarily go into politics in, the, in politics in the traditional way, but to be a consultant. And in many facets of political thinking, you people are akin to the devil. Political consultants are absolutely the worst. How do you continue to differentiate yourself away from, let's say, the faceless, grey-suited lobbyists in Washington and maintain some level of integrity? By the way, I agree with you on consultants. I continue to, I have very few actual consultants that I believe are truly good, good consultants. But I actually, I don't even call myself a consultant because I don't think that's what I am. I call myself an operative because while consultants tell people what to do, I execute what they tell us to do. So that's really where I see my organization's role. And I beg for people out there to please, if you're going to start a business in this space, start an operative business, start a business where you can actually help execute the ideas of the consultants because we have a million and one consultants and we have no executors. But that's a little tangent to say that. I think that where we're going and where where I see us in the next 10 years in the space is really helping candidates, especially these early working class candidates, people like Bernie when he first ran for office, right, when he was running and lost his first two campaigns and then won by 10 votes when he ran for mayor. We want to be able to help fund those people early. And that's not to say that we want to oppose the DC or oppose the Democratic Party. We absolutely do. We don't want to do that because we believe that you know, it all change happens from the inside of the party. These people that are trying to start a third party, that's just 
that's great if we had 100 years where we weren't going to die from climate change. But unfortunately, at this point, we don't have that. So our goal in the next 10 years is to not just continue to help get these candidates elected, but to start a nonprofit organization, which we're starting next year, where we can actually help fund these candidates through direct donors. So that's really where we're headed. And we're hoping that we can get a lot of support in really helping them get off the ground in a fair, more equal way. Thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic Z, Cohen Sanchez, the Executive Director of Soul Strategies. If you enjoy the output which we do here at Mid-Atlantic, again, it's another shout out to if you can't write a review and who can't write a review. It's quite simple. You just click on the link in the show notes. Go tell a friend. Let's go and expand the message of civil discourse within politics. We live in times where the middle ground, or at least you don't have to be in the middle, to appreciate that the other side has a perspective and to want to engage with them. And that's what we always try and do here at Mid-Atlantic, and that's what we really do promote. So if you believe in that message that you can be left and you can be right, but you can actually engage with each other constructively, this most definitely is the podcast for you, and we need you to help us to evangelize about that and to spread that message. Zico and Sanchez, again, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Look after your loved ones and look after yourselves. Don't forget, left to center politics is right thinking politics. We do engage with our political opponents, our brothers and sisters on the other side of the aisle. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mid-Atlantic. Take care. I've been Royfield Brown. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.